0: Welcome back to UVA Data Points. I'm your host, Monica Manny. In today's episode, we're featuring a conversation between Raph Alvarado and Alison Bigelow. Raph and Allison are both professors at UVA, researchers, intellectuals, and all-around awesome people. Their conversation focuses on the MultiPro Project, an ongoing research initiative that analyzes the K'iche Mayan Book of Creation. It's a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation that explores the intersections of data science, digital humanities, history, language, and culture. Like any well-rounded data science project, the MultiPro project intersects with all four areas of the model of data science, but it has a particular focus on the area of design. For a good description of this area, we spoke with Professor Pete Alonzi.
1: Hello there, my name is Peter Alonzi, and I am a data scientist and particle physicist, and I serve as an assistant professor here in the School of Data Science at the University of Virginia. When I think of design, the first thing I think of is how many conversations I've had trying to explain what it means and how hard it is to do that. It's tricky. Design is where some of the critical decisions are made that influence how your work comes to pass. Essentially, the task that you have to do is you have to draw a connection between the infinite universe and infinite complexities and the human mind. The human mind is magnificent, um, but it, it cannot contain the infinite universe. We have to leave things in. We have to leave things out. We have to ask ourselves, what is the important piece that we need to keep so that the human can understand what is going on in the universe. And I think usually the best way to go forward is with an example. And the one I always use is time. Humans walking around all over the place know what time is and you probably have a device that helps you understand it. It might be strapped to your arm, it might sit in your pocket, um, but they're everywhere. And there's a lot of decisions. So what I want you to do is think, close your eyes and think of a wall clock and picture it. And then when you do that, you probably thought of either an analog or a digital clock And those are the dominant paradigms, is what we would say, to be as nerdy as possible. And, you know, they they have different strengths and weaknesses or pros and cons. When you have a digital clock, it's very easy to be precise. We have great technology, the piezoelectric effect lets us get these little quartz actions inside, so we know exactly what time it is. And we can just add more digits, so you can put seconds on it. You can put milliseconds on it, or me in physics land, you can put nanoseconds on the clock. And anybody can read it and we're all going to agree exactly on what time it is down to the nanosecond. But there's an enduring popularity to that other kind of clock, the analog clock, the clock that isn't as precise. You can put a second hand on the clock and you can get down to the seconds and that's great. But you might even not agree on the minute though, unless you build an enormous clock so big you can get real close and see right where that hand is. You don't have the precision, but there's something else that you do have. It gives you a physical representation of the passage of time as opposed to a completely abstract representation that you get with a digital clock. That is a design choice. When you are making a clock, when you are thinking about how people need to use time, you make a decision to use an analog or a digital clock. Those are design decisions. That's what we mean when we say design in data science. Think about your digital clock today in your nanoseconds. Think about your analog clock and how the hand sweeps out a physical representation. You can advance your technology. You can miniaturize. You can get that precision. It can fit in your pocket. But when you do it and you do your data science and you think about design, you have to ask yourself the question, what do I lose when I make that design choice?
0: And with that, let's get into the conversation with Allison and Raf.
2: My name is Raf Alvarado. I'm the uh, program director of the residential master's degree in the School of Data Science. I'm also an associate professor here, and I concentrate in teaching courses on text analytics and cultural analytics. Uh, My background is in digital humanities, which I've been involved with for some time since the 90s, since basically completing my dissertation in cultural anthropology. Uh, Before that, I had a, a degree in philosophy, but I should point out that I studied engineering for two years before I jumped ship as an undergraduate, which sort of gave me the uh, tools to develop into a career as a data scientist.
3: And I feel like my path is also circuitous. So I'm Allison Bigelow. I have a really long title right now. I'm the Tom Scully Discovery Chair Associate Professor in the Department of Spanish, Italian, and Portuguese. And I'm also affiliate faculty in Latin American Studies, Women, Gender, and Sexuality, and the Equity Center. For the redress of historic inequities.
2: Yeah, um, you know, I I think I should point out because Allison to me is a very interesting figure intellectually because you have a a degree in English.
3: Oh yeah, so my undergraduate degrees are English and Spanish. Then my graduate degrees, uh, master's is English and comparative literature, PhD is English and comparative literature. Postdoc at the Omohundro Institute of Early American History and Culture, and then got hired in a Spanish department as a colonial Latin Americanist.
2: And I, I think of your work, and this ties into this, you know, multipal, as very much historical, r- mm-hmm. right? So she just wrote a book called Mining Language that won the American Historical Association's, uh, I don't know what you call it, Book of the Year.
3: No, <laughs> no, it was um, the Raleigh Award in Atlantic World History.
2: Okay. But historians, or uh, an award that's usually reserved for historians or As far as we texts. know, it
3: has never gone to someone, well, certainly it's never gone to someone in a Spanish department in the 20-something years of the award, yeah. and it doesn't seem to have ever gone to someone outside of history either.
2: See, that's what I think is really interesting, and I think that actually hits on uh, a point about our project, the Multipal project, because it's about language, but it's also about history, right, and it's, it's, it's history through language.
3: So should we say what multipol is?
2: Sure. Give it a shot.
3: Sure. Right. Well, Roth coined the term, so I feel like you should go oh, first yeah. on that. All right.
2: So Multipal is a is a two two things. We have a project called the Multipol project, which I think broadly speaking could be characterized as a, a digital humanities project that is focused on indigenous Mesoamerican literature. And, uh, and other sort of artifacts of writing and language. It could be more broadly conceived than that, but that's its main focus. And of course, we're focusing on uh, the one uh, narrative, major narrative to survive the Spanish conquest, which was called the Popol Vuh. I don't know if you all know, but the Spanish pretty much destroyed all the other texts that the Mayas had. There was something called the Alto de Fe. Uh, Diego de Landa uh, destroyed all the books, uh, forget the exact date, uh, but doesn't, doesn't matter. Anyway, there are other things there that we want to digitize, but we're trying to – part of it is trying to decolonize digital humanities and focus on other traditions. The word multipal actually comes from Maya. It's a Yucatec Maya word. Uh, that, that means common, I, I translate it as commonwealth, because if you look at the roots, mul and tepal, it's roughly the same as commonwealth. But what it really means is historically, the Maya had a, a really interesting form of rulership, which is that they rotated rulership a, a, a among four polities. And I believe they did it in 20 year intervals using the calendar system, uh, which has this sort of political period called the katun, which is a 20 year period and every 20 years it would rotate, uh, which is an interesting form of, 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 of rulership. Uh, it'd be interesting if Europe were organized that way. You know, one year, England's in control, the next year, Fran- or the next decade, uh, France is, or something like that. And so it's an image of shared uh, rulership and shared power, which is how we envision how this project works, because we want to collaborate with people, not just in the United States, of course, uh, with the people who actually as it were, own these texts and for whom these texts are not just, you know, research material, but, but part of identity. Yeah.
3: So the project began in the spring of 2017 when we taught a graduate seminar um, focused on Latin American digital humanities. And this was designed to fill a particular gap at UVA. Almost all of the digital humanities coursework, particularly at the graduate level, focused on Anglophone cultural productions and students in Spanish and Latin American studies were eager to get some sort of training. So I paired with Roth and we developed this idea to teach a class that would focus on the Popovu because of its historical and cultural importance to Mesoamerica. So the Popovu is an ancient Maya K'iche narrative um, that explains the origins of the universe and the emergence of the K'iche people. So the narrative arc of the story begins from the moment of creation when earth and sky, which existed beforehand, become separate domains. So unlike um, Christian accounts of creation, which are ex nihilo, you already have a world that existed. It was just still and existed without motion or agency or movement. Um, The gods come together as a group and decide to create the earth and to give it movement and potential. Then they go through a series of creating humans. They fail a couple times, and then they finally land on humans who are made of corn. And that bec- those humans become the progenitors of the modern Quiche people, who then split into various political factions all throughout Mexico and Guatemala. So the story begins in the broadest possible cosmological terms and ends with very specific political lineages that that. Um, terminate around 1554, so what we think happened based on iconographic evidence and the way that the story unfolds is that the narrative circulated in oral forms in lowland Maya communities and highland Maya communities in pictographic and visual forms. And that much like the Chilambalam of Mexico, each town probably had its own Popovu, Mm. but because of the threat of Spanish invasion because the Spaniards were destroying so many primary sources around 1554 writers or scribes from three ruling lineages in the Highlands collaborated to write this one account so the account the one Popovu that we have reflects three particular political lineages. And they explain in the beginning that they're writing this down in alphabetic letters because the old Popovu can no longer be seen, which suggests either that it was written in hieroglyphics, which couldn't be read anymore. The knowledge
2: for which was lost during the collapse.
3: Um, Or that that this was a totally new world of Spanish colonial rule. And so the forms of wisdom that they could access in the past aren't available to them, and they have to find a new way of doing things.
2: They're being eclipsed, in other yes. words, yeah, yeah.
3: And so they they write down the story using what we think of as an alphabet, uh, with quiche on one column and Spanish on the other. The text that they wrote sometime around 1554 is lost, but a colonial friar made a copy of it in around 1701 or 1703. And that copy is the basis mm-hmm. of the 1,200 different editions that exist in 25 world languages, including 12 Mayan languages.
2: The one thing I would add is, is uh, when, I, when you go back to the, the narrative structure, what I like to think of as, and it's uh, excuse the pun, but maybe it's an intended pun, the kernel of the story <laughs> is. Uh, so how do you get from this cosmology to the, to the K'iche' people? and she mentioned that you know the, the humans were, were invented a couple of times, they were made of wood, they were made of dirt, and they, they weren't quite good enough, right, for the gods. And one, at one point, they're, they're so smart that the gods say, you know what, you're way too smart, and we're gonna blur your vision, because uh, you're too smart. Uh, and anyway, the, uh, the cool thing is that real people emerge from corn, they eat corn. And so how t- it's really a story of how at the center of which, which you'll like, because you're writing a book on corn, of how corn is invented, and, and it has to do with sacrifice. So in the underworld, the hero twins, I'll cut, the, cut to the chase here, they defeat death. So they go and they find the Lord of Death and they trick the Lord of Death uh, into... And they kill the lord, so they basically they kill death, which is a really interesting. Uh, they
3: trick him into killing himself.
2: Yeah, so yeah. They, they, you know, death is death is dead. It's a double negation, right? And so with through that act, then corn. I believe that's mm-hmm. you know, it's a condition of possibility for corn. So it's really interesting at the at the kernel of it, at, you know, the center of it. Really, is this narrative about the efficacy of sacrifice and its relationship to corn, and it also just shows you how important corn is to Mesoamerica. Um, that goes back to I don't remember I don't know if you're familiar with Kirchhoff's uh, distinctive features of Mesoamerica. and he has this like it shows the extent of Mesoamerica into Central America and up into Mexico. and there are these common features that these cultures share. and one of them, obviously is corn. It's fundamental.
3: which is also why the book is so important for language preservation because there's a lot of vocabulary um, that is not necessarily practiced in communities today, but are the. Kiche team and the Yucatec team are really excited about the possibility of revitalization or reintroduction of terms for specific agricultural techniques and planting practices for um, food ways.
2: Yeah, yeah. So there's really- a lot of
3: cool stuff you can do with the corn vocabulary um, and knowledge in the book once you encode it in the ways that we're trying to do. Yeah. So right now, and maybe we can talk, I'll give an overview of what, the, what we're doing and then maybe we can talk about how your earlier projects are influencing the work that we're doing now. Right. Um, but basically in the course, we had the students uh, encode the one surviving manuscript from the colonial period. They used a TUI light schema and we gave each student a certain number of folios um, to work on. And then after the seminar, we realized that there was a lot more work to be done um, and that we had this amazing opportunity instead of just focusing on creating a resource for scholars and something that university teachers might use in the classroom, our work could really be extended to communities in ways that were very powerful. So um, in the communities where we're now working, uh, particularly K'iche' speaking communities and Yucatec Maya speaking communities, there's a real question of um, limited access to printed materials. So, it is often the case in these regions of Mexico and Guatemala that there will be a major investment in printing books and grammars and resources for primary school students and secondary school students in native languages for the goal of language preservation. But after the first print run, the books are almost impossible to find. And a lot of times the books don't make their way, physical books don't make their way into the communities where the knowledge and the language was generated and needs to be used. However, cell phone access is extraordinarily high in the regions where we work. So the figures are about 80% of citizens over the age of six in Yucatan have a cell phone. And in Guatemala, there are more cell phones than there are people. And not all of those are smartphones. Not everyone has the same degree of access, but in collaboration with our partners um, at La Universidad del Oriente in Valladolid, Yucatán and the um, Universidad Rafael Landívar in Antigua, we learned that digital resources would have much wider penetration in the communities than printed materials would be. So with that idea, we began to of reframe our work, which was really focused on an intervention of cl- in colonial archives, into something that could be used as a tool for youth language learning and language preservation in two languages that score um, moderate risk on the scale of ind- of endangered languages according to Ethnologue.
2: Yeah, so. The role that digitization plays in this whole thing is really interesting, because um, in order to accomplish those goals and, and in order to pivot the way that we did, so we you know, moved from, you were saying, an intervention in the archive. You know, Our original task was, OK, let's, let's encode this text using an XML standard called TEI, which stands for Text Encoding Initiative, uh, and just use this as a way to, re- to represent the text and encode our interpretive decisions. Uh, and we pivoted to, let's let's share this text through these, through these uh, media, these other forms of media that are, that are digital and electronic and so forth. The way that's possible, it's, it's actually, no, it's, it's not trivial. Like if you digitize something in, in, according to certain techniques and methods, you might not be able to do that pivot. Like for example, if you put all of your efforts in digitizing a text using a CD-ROM and using proprietary standards, and you're focusing on, on the images and as, as opposed to the transcription of the text, it's very hard to share that. In fact, that's the state of affairs that we encountered when we started working on this project that other digital projects, laudable as they were and as scholarly as they were in terms of the content, in terms of form, were just not really usable. And so the digital humanities contribution is really to think about the project of text encoding as a form of data representation that is authentic to to the source and independent of any particular use so that you can use it for all these different purposes. Uh, and that's really what the text encoding initiative is all about. Um, there were actual sort of intellectual battles fought in the 1990s about the way text should be encoded. Uh, and with these arguments that it needs to be device independent, it needs to be independent of outcome, so that it can be used for all these other things, uh, later. And it turns out to be true and really helpful in our case. So we, we encoded this using standards. Uh, but also a lot of methods that I developed over the years working on other projects. Um, one you know, project in particular that I worked on uh, was something called the Charette Project, which involved encoding an old French manuscript of uh, one of the romance, uh, one of the Arthurian romances, the one of uh, Lancelot and the Cart. Uh, anyways, I won't go into that particular story. But the, the, the work of encoding that text And uh, doing this uh, overlay of marking up all of the poetic figures in the text kind of taught me how to structure that kind of markup to capture both the text content and the semantic or interpretive content that the text sort of bears. And so in our case, what we've done is we've taken the text and we've marked it up. We collectively took every single manuscript page and looked at every single word down to the character, weird anomalous characters, Uh, coffee stains, if you will, on the manuscript pages, dealing with all that paleographic stuff, but also with the goal of going through every single passage and and finding elements of uh, proper names, if you will, that represent Mayan things. You know, deities, uh, toponyms, place names, uh, names of lineages, uh, names of substances like blood or rubber, which play an important role in the story. And marking up the text that way is a big part of what we did. And we're able to do it because of this particular method of using markup. And so really what we have, and I guess I should branch off into sort of the architecture of the project, sort of you know, from a data science perspective. So you've got this text, and it's marked up. And a text is basically a tree structure. In mathematical terms, it's what's called a di- directed acyclic graph. So it's just basically a, a tree with a whole bunch of branches. And then when you mark that up, you can take all those elements in that tree and put them into a database, which has a more tabular structure. It's kind of like an encyclopedia where every entry is like, oh, here's Hunapu, or here's Kik, you know, and each, thing, each one of these things has an entry. And then we've created a map between the text and, the, and this database. And we've had, I don't know how many people we've had working on this, but these thing, the, the things in the database we call themas or topics, uh, that basically point to the instances in the text of where all these things appear, and over time, what we've done is is basically extracted, uh, you know, a kind of worldview from the text, or the, the 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 realm of things that are talked about, you know, as opposed to how they're talked about in a narrative sequence, you know, um, yeah, and so that's really the 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 sort of architectural you know, structure of the site as it is now. I should also point out we have annotations.
3: So I feel like Roth always gives the really high level technical definition and then I'll do the multiple for dummies. So this means that if you're looking at our website and you are a student trying, who is assigned to read the and uh, most of our uh, traffic comes from US, Mexico and Guatemala primarily between Tuesdays and Thursdays, which suggests that it's being used by Classic. students who are in classes. Like no one's going to our website on Saturday. <laughs> um, you basically go, you see two columns. One column is the text marked up in Quiche, and next to it is the text marked up in Spanish. And it's really, not, this is how it's written on the original manuscript, but it also allows you to compare the two, um, the Quiche original text in the Spanish translation to spot moments where Um, the colonial friar who copied the manuscript may have intervened in it and it allows you to see how names change between the two Um, you can click on any term that appears in red and that will take you to our encyclopedia and you'll get it first you get a brief record so if all you need is a quick description that says this is what this animal is then you're good if you are still confused after you read the brief record you can click full record. And that takes you to our extensive encyclopedia page, which has a much larger description of what this particular animal is, includes oftentimes um, images, links to secondary sources, and links to related topics so that you can see, oh, okay, this is how this particular snake, Socho, relates to this kind of snake. There are three different forms for the word for snake, which is an example of what we're trying to do with language preservation. Um, some of the terms are like in Yucatec Maya, there's really only one word used now, con, but by showing how the Yucatec and the K'iche relate, we can, um, generate tools for researchers and for teachers who are trying to study things like language contact and language change over time. So that's sort of what the user sees when they go to our site. They don't necessarily see the architecture, well, yeah. but the architecture no, they can't, yeah. is how it happens.
2: Well, you know, yeah, let's, let's, Pull back on that a little bit because that's really important. Because there, there is a, there are two sort of ways that people can access the information. Right? One is there is an interactive HTML viewer which is designed for people to use, and that's what you're describing. It sort of it pulls everything together. But we're all. But but it's really important that we're also creating an open source and open access project. So all of the raw materials are available to users too, if if they want to like dive into it and look at the raw code. Uh, the thing is that stuff. Uh, in keeping with sort of digital humanities principles and 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 you know scholarly principles, that stuff's not meant to be sort of hidden. Like, oh, don't look at that. It's it's actually, if you're interested, you can you can look at it. Not only that, you can take it and use it for your own purposes. Right? Mm-hmm. That TEI, and you can do other things with it. For example, you know, if we develop an, a collection of enough texts, we might be able to do a comparative study. Of, of narrative sequences within text. Like you could look at the distribution of certain entities in the text and plot those over time or narrative time. There's just a lot of cool things you can do with, with the data, uh, but it's definitely designed for, you know, maybe a second level of access or, you know, not, not every, every reader, but, but
3: yeah. Because our project has changed the way that we think about our primary user, this does influence a little bit our approach to markup. So yesterday I was working with one of the students, Um, Ralph said, how many people have worked on the text? We had nine students from the seminar, seven graduates and two undergraduates. Um, We've also had two students who work on the project as part of the USOR program, which is a um, program here at UVA that matches uh, work study students with faculty research mentors and trains students to get their hands wet and see what research is like. So we were stuck because the Yucatec edition of the Popovu, done by Fidencio Preseño Chal, represents uh, the artisan brothers as two separate characters. But their facing Spanish language translation has it as just one. And this kind of makes sense because in Quiche uh, and Yucatec, the two names of the characters are Junbats and Hunchoen. Choen is the lowland Maya version of the, the word monkey and bots is the Highland Maya version. So if you know both Mayan languages, it's, they're called the same thing. And so in Spanish, they just call him un mono, one monkey. But for markup, this creates a lot of challenges because we wanna show that in the Yucatec column, they're following the same naming pattern that you find in the quiche. In the Spanish, they're making a different interpretive decision about what to name this character. And they then make all of the nouns like my older brother in Tsukun, they make it singular or they say mi hermano mayor. Mm
2: -hmm. The Castilian does that. Right. And so
3: we have to encode a singular noun as a plural because it's technically pointing to both of the characters. And the reason why we have to do that is because some of our users are probably going to want to download the data set to be able to see how many times are these brothers referenced in the text? And to be able to count, you know, when does Hun Bats appear and when does Hun Chuen and when do they appear as a pair? And so it, the fact that we're trying to work with these two different audiences who have two different needs and interests in working with the text means that we spend a lot of time discussing, you know, very specific examples mm-hmm. of how someone is named or not named in the text. Like Ishkik the mother of the hero twins who are at the center of this story is often referred to as coib, um, which is like maiden. And in Spanish it's "doncella." And so we had a long debate at the beginning about whether we should tag those references with her name because she's not technically named by the authors, but they're referencing her. And so if we don't tag her by this now, na- if we only use proper nouns, then we're missing a lot of the female characters in the text. Yeah. So we decided to mark up all of the doncellas and ellas. And, the pronouns. Yep.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, that's really
3: pronouns pr- and nouns.
2: Yeah, so that's really. See, this I think raises a really interesting point about this sort of project, and actually, its relationship to data science. Because, so one of the really important concepts in data science that I'm really keen on surfacing and making sure that it's out there and understood that it's part of what we do, is it's not just about taking data, there's this expression in data science called tidy data, and you have data, I call it clean room data, where you've got your swivel chair and you're working, it. it's all nice and ready to go, and you're doing all your statistics, but you, you don't really concern yourself with the actual production of data. And in, and in reality, data is really messy, and it's, it's created by humans, and it's full of all kinds of decisions, and it's super important for, for anyone in the pipeline working with data to know what those decisions are and how sort of, to lack of, lack of a better phrase, how the sausage is made, right? And This, this is why
3: our friends, the economists, call it massaging the data. And then when they escalate, they call it waterboarding the data.
2: <laughs> Mike, I never heard of that. Oh, you should but, be married
3: but, to an economist. But, you learn but, all but kinds But what of
2: you're things. doing is really the whole the thing that, that, that digital humanists have been... Uh, sort of uh, into from the beginning, which is when you encode data, like you, you have a, a, a you have a facsimile of a manuscript, and then you have this standard of how you encode it according to a sequence of characters that can be understood by a computer you are making all kinds of decisions about that content and it's not just like you know bookkeeping decisions these are intellectual decisions they make you think about well what is a noun what is its really what is the relationship between a plural and a singular and you end up theorizing i call this the rationalization effect where you start to, to come up with theories to explain things that were normally tacit or unspoken normally when you just leave media as it is but when you actually do remediation you end up in this really interesting space where you're theorizing. And your data is a representation of that theorization.
3: Mm-hmm. Of each choice that you made of along the way. each choice.
2: And so that's your data. And so if someone downstream gets this TEI marked up text. Uh, they are getting an artifact of, a, of this a really deep uh, and profound intellectual and scholarly process. And so part of what one has to do, it's more than just what we call a data dictionary. The, you know, these, these these encoded texts are also associated with commentary about the editorial process. And this stuff goes into the header, but also in documents like you wrote for, um, you know, your your guide to the encoders on what to do basically represents your understanding of what this text is and what Mayan textuality is uh, to some degree in Mayan language. Based yeah, because on, because yeah. our
3: team has so many students and now because we have eight collaborators working in Mexico um Four are Yucatec Maya, and four are non-native, and then we have five Highland Maya scholars on the Guatemalan team who are from K'iche', K'ichi, and Sutsuhil communities. It I realized that we had never actually written down our theory of the text, as yeah. you just called it. We had never written down on guidelines in a way that would guide people step-by-step, step. so that was what I was working on. Um, this week, until my kid got sent home from daycare yeah, and he had yeah. no childcare. No, it's,
2: it's really It's fascinating, uh, that document. And it's really, like I was telling you yesterday, I think it's, the, it's one of the fruits of our labor, right? Or, uh, this collective labor that goes in. It's this understanding of the text. And the point is, you know, th- it's a false separation to think of like technical and scholarly stuff. You know, this stuff happens, it's interwoven. And this is... Part and parcel of what I think data science is. It's not just you know doing your analytics or, or or that sort of stuff. That's obviously super important, but it's in the production of data and in the representation of the world in data. And that is to speak to the uh, uh, its relationship to what we in the School of Data Science call the four plus one model. This is very much obviously it's in the space of value to a great degree because it's about it's about um, you know uh, uh, involving indigenous communities in the in the in the production of these texts and in the and in the results and so forth. Uh, But it's all and it involves data sovereignty issues that we should probably talk about. But it's also in the space of what we call design, which is all about how the world is represented in data, uh, which is not a trivial process, which is a human process. Um, And that's what we're doing, basically. I think it's just uh, it's fascinating to me how much how much is being produced in that in that in that work, you know.
3: So should we talk about what the Yucatec and the K'iche' teams are producing and then talk about data sovereignty?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
3: Okay. Um, So basically the way that we conceived of the current iteration of the multipole Project was we reached out to scholars we knew from native communities who work extensively in their communities and said, we do this thing with the Popovu. Is there any way that this would be helpful for your scholarship your research or your community engagement and your teaching and each pi said yes we could we can find a way to use that Um, and so each team developed its own separate project. so in the kiche team based in antigua is producing an extremely scholarly digital critical edition of the popovu in kiche based on the original surviving manuscript but with modern orthography um, at correcting things like punctuation, word breaks. They're finding a lot of morphosyntactic change. They're finding really interesting linguistic elements in the text. And they're explaining all of their decisions about where they deviate from the manuscript or where they update things um, in footnotes that are in Spanish and quiche so that teachers in Guatemala's national program of um, bilingual and intercultural education can use that material to explain linguistic concepts to students in the classroom. So what they're producing is extremely detailed, painstaking work of going line by line, word by word, character by character through the original, the 56 folios of the original manuscript to produce something that's really designed for classroom use. The Yucatec team identified a totally separate need for their students. They said, you know, surveying the communities here, we find that there is a decent amount of printed materials. There are also things for kids like memory games that are in Yucatec Maya to build vocabulary. So we sort of have a set amount of physical materials. What we really need is cool stuff that kids can watch on their phones to engage with the language. So they are making a series of five five five-minute videos that are animated using a combination of classic Maya iconography and like anime-style superheroes. Um, They are, they have a team of student illustrators who are painting all of the background scenes, developing the characters, uh, and then putting everything into motion with music and their own original soundscapes. The audio is entirely in Yucatec Maya, but you can put the subtitles on in Yucatec Maya, Spanish, or English, so that students can either practice um, systemic phonics to hear Maya, and read it at the same time, or hear the Maya and have the Spanish translation so that they can build comprehension with spoken Maya, or practice their English at the same time, particularly if they're more comfortable in Mayan than they are in English. So what they're developing is a resource for youth language, learning and building excitement, but also translation um, for primarily like sixth grade through 12th grade students. And so each team, surveying their own language learning needs of their people, has developed a radically different project. And then our challenge here is to design the architecture to be able to host these two projects and and create a platform for them to sh- be shared um, with students and teachers and faculty.
2: Right. Yeah, and, and also just, uh, in keeping with our dialectic of abstract and concrete. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, uh, one of the challenges of the of the grant and, and our project in general is okay. We're, we are um, we we have all of these variant versions of the Vuh. and of course there are many that already exist. I mean there are hundreds of versions, but there are a you know, handful of ones out there that are sort of. Uh, More popular. But in any case, there's a whole variety of of variants of the Popol Vuh, and we're we're, uh, sponsoring the development of others. And we'd like to incorporate those into a single system uh, that's sometimes called a multi text, uh, sometimes it's called a variorum. And the idea is that it should, in principle, be possible uh, because so many of them are based on the original um, uh, transcribed oral narrative by Jimenez, uh, a Franciscan friar. Domin- Excuse me, Dominican, uh, who um, whose you know text is the basis of so many translations. We would we would like to be able to map every text to its genealogy, coming from that original text, or to, or from something else if it comes from there. So you can you can look at you know a passage in 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 the uh, newly uh, emerging version of the Kiche uh, digital critical edition and see how it's connected to the the uh Jimenez manuscript and then how that's connected to say Christensen's version or to tedlock's version or to presenio Chael's version and and that's all afforded by the fact that we're using a common markup schema which is a, f- a markup schema is essentially a data representation of text and so once once you have something in that data representation there are ways of connecting things uh, uh, in, ver- in very interesting ways. And then you can visualize this stuff later or you can traverse the, the network of textual content and so forth. Um, and then also produce the things that you're talking about, which are these interesting versions of the text that people can then read and explore on their own.
3: The only thing I can think of that we mentioned that we haven't talked about are annotations and data sovereignty.
2: Yeah, so uh, I'll mention something about annotations. Right. Uh, so the annotations are... That's a, a, an annotation, just as a side note, is a very traditional way of, of uh, reading a text uh, uh, that goes back to the ancient times, it's a biblical scholarship, uh, classical scholarship, where you're reading a text and the text is considered very important and so you want to comment on that text. Uh, there are volumes, for example, of commentary on Dante's Inferno, for example. And we've done the same thing with with this text, where we have our students and other scholars who read the text and say, oh, this interesting passage here. So what what we've done is created a tool where people can write sort of mini-essays and and tell uh, and and specify exactly where they point to in the text. And so when you look at the text with the interactive viewer, you can see, oh, there's a commentary on this passage. Let me go check it out. You click on the link and you get to the commentary. And that's in addition to the sort of the encyclopedia that we we're talking about. Uh, and that's really cool. So uh, we, we uh, have a lot of interesting work there. And this work to me is fascinating because it's like, these are short little pieces, uh, but some of them, uh, many of them have, you know, are really deep scholarly contributions to the field and could be publications in their own right, especially if we pull them out and sort of group them together. Uh, so that's the annotation component. And again, that's part of the multi-text. You know, it's all, you know, annotation points to an element in the text, that element in the text may be a translation from some other element in a primary text. And so it forms this this network of, um, of uh, lexical units, if you will. Um, so say something about data sovereignty.
3: Sure, so the principle of indigenous data sovereignty really grows out of what um, information science studies scholar, Marisa Duarte calls first world indigenous communities. So U.S., Canada, Australia. Um, It maps somewhat uneasily onto Latin American indigenous communities and their concerns, but the principle, I think, remains the same. So the basic principle, as it's articulated by groups like the Maori um, in what is now New Zealand uh, and the Native Nations Institute at the University of Arizona, is that Since 1492, data and information and knowledge about Indigenous communities has been extracted from them in extremely exploitative ways, has not been used to benefit the community, but has instead been used to make others wealthy or famous for their publications or uh, it's been used as a form of social and professional currency. And so the theory of data sovereignty is that indigenous communities should get to control who knows what about them and how they use their own data. So for our project, that means that each community that develops its own um, approach to the Popovu, its own particular product, whether it's a text or it's a video, gets to control how it circulates in the world, what it looks like. We don't make content or editorial decisions about what each team does. Um, The teams disagree too. At team meetings, for example, the K'iche' team thought the Yucatec team was a little too modern in its interpretation of the Popovu. But out of respect for the intellectual and data sovereignty of the Yucatec team, the K'iche' team makes its comment, shares the feedback, and then lets the team proceed as it wants, which is the same thing that we do. We weigh in as colleagues, but we don't own the data in any way.
2: Yeah, and it's it's really it's a really interesting issue because uh, there is an ethos in I guess data science shares this with the sort of techie uh, worldview that that you know has been with us since the web became popular. It's this view, and we talked about open source and open access. There's this view that you often hear called information wants to be free. And it's it's and it's the view that motivates, say, Wikipedia uh, the Internet Archive and a lot of other efforts just to get information out there. For example, the Internet Archive's mission is to get everything, uh, uh, anything of cultural value, historical value out on the web so that everybody can access it. And they'll even go into, they're very aggressive about this, they'll even go into museums and take pictures of things that they're not supposed to take pictures of. I don't know if they still do that. They, 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 they you know, cut corners on copyright. Uh, and, and, and it's all in this sort of... Uh, uh, you know, this value that information wants to be free. However, that runs into, you know, severe conflict when you're looking at, for example, an Australian group who uses chiringas to basically legitimate land right claims to waterholes and things like that. And there are these these artifacts which encode stories that uh, are really cool. You can look at them as art. And in fact, we have here the Kluge uh, Art Museum in Charlottesville, uh, Margot Smith uh, has set up. You know, she did fieldwork in Australia. There's all this, you know, Australian art. But the issue there is a lot of that stuff isn't "quote unquote" art. It's 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 basically a proprietary information, mm-hmm. and it's what people use to legitimate, like I was saying just now, claims and so forth. And it's not meant to be shared. Uh, and there, that's just one example. And so they want to basically own that information and 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 be in 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 control of. Who gets to see it? Uh, what what you learn about it? It could be lore, for example, that's meant to be not even de- the objects themselves, but the knowledge of how to decode them, as it were, uh, is 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 not meant to be shared with the world. Um, and so those issues are are you know front and center in in projects like this. We ours is a little bit different because the primary object was surfaced so long ago. I mean, and it was it was an extraction. In itself, right? The uh, the Popol Vuh that we have, the manuscript was transcribed from an what we think is an oral narrative from the Quiche Maya by a Christian priest in order to convert them. So it was, it was a, a part of a project to learn about indigenous beliefs correct uh and ideas of divinity and so forth and to take these ideas and use them as a language both to learn about the indigenous but also to translate into christian ideas to translate christian ideas into Uh, and so it's part of this project already uh and it's already out there uh and so it's it's problematized by that um and then you find i think uh, is it true that in the guatemalan case do you feel like there's more of a sense of ownership of the narrative because it is guatemalan And it is tied to Guatemalan nationalism these days.
0: I
3: would say the Quiche team has a more, overall has a more traditional approach to understanding the text. But it's also hard to know how much of that is just the team leader versus the whole team, because we don't attend each of their team meetings. We only hear his updates. And so it's entirely possible that like Ashol, who's the poet on the team, has a different interpretation than a poop. Yeah.
2: And my I guess is that good...
3: my guess is that they all the f- of the five, there are probably five different interpretations.
2: Yeah, th- to me this is a really interesting point too. I mean, you probably noticed too this in terms of how translations differ. This is one thing I noticed like translators decide which metaphors they mm-hmm. keep and which ones they bury. You know, like like for example, sitting on the mat is a metaphor for rulership. And so some translators will say if there's a passage where, you know, somebody sat on the mat, they'll say somebody sat on the mat and have a footnote that says, sitting on the mat, by the way, means ascending to power. Others will say, he ascended to power, and they'll just elide the, the metaphor. And so anybody downstream reading the text won't get what I call the metaphorics or the, the imagery that sort of animates the, the idea. And I don't think anybody's consistent about which things they gloss and which things they treat as Concrete, but when you do the um, the work that you're doing, you you have to be concrete the whole time, because uh, you are you're, you're marking up the text and you're marking up the particular language that's used to signify something that might be signified otherwise more abstractly uh, in the translation. And I think that's super important to understanding what the text is
3: And then people who use the text map that you're building mm-hmm. can see all of those variant translations and, and decisions right. that others
0: have made.
2: Yeah. So in some yeah. way, a culture is a collection of metaphors. And that's kind of what we're documenting here.
0: Thanks for checking out this week's episode. You can find links to the Multipole Project, as well as Allison's book, in the show notes. We'll be back on November 1st with a conversation within the area of systems, but keep an eye out for a bonus episode in the meantime. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at uvadatapoints at We'll see you next time.